Uh, would you join me again in prayer? Oh God, we do thank you for Christ, our living hope. Father, we pray that our daily lives would honor you, that our daily lives would commend the gospel. Help us remember the calling that you have called us to and help us to walk in it. God, we ask that you would help us to be generous. Help us to hold loosely to the things of this world. And Father, teach us to invest in things of eternal value. And that our generosity would be joyful, worshipful, and glorifying to you. Lord, this morning we lift up the nation of Poland. We pray for those whose lives look very different right now. God, we ask that you would sustain them, that you would protect them. Lord, we pray for Christian churches there. Would you allow them and empower them to share the hope that they have found in you? God, we ask that the light of the gospel would shine even brighter in the darkness. Father, closer to home, we pray for our denomination, Feb Central. We thank you for this fellowship of churches. We thank you for the gift of like-minded churches, like-minded local churches that they have been to us and to so many. We pray for fellow churches. God, as things get closer and closer to back to normal, Lord, we know that too many churches are facing what feels like the hardest season yet. We can't exactly explain why. We pray that churches would grow in unity and trust. We ask that churches, both members and elders, would grow in humility, in patience, in gentleness, and in bearing with one another in love. We pray that for us too. Strengthen us. Unite us by your word. And as we come to your word now, we pray that you would help us to be attentive and to be aware of what you would have for us today. Thank you for the gift of your word that you speak to us through it. Help us to grasp the gospel more today than we did yesterday. Help us to rest in our hope of salvation. Lord, what we don't know, would you teach us? What we don't have, what you, would you give us? And what we are not, would you make us? And so, Father, we end where we started, thanking you for the gift of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, in whose name we pray. Amen. Would you turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6? Ephesians chapter 6. If you don't own a Bible, we would love to give you a Bible. And so if you don't have one, you can uh, feel free to grab one anytime, but you can go grab one after the service, and that is yours to keep. We would love to give you a Bible, uh, a Bible in a, a translation that you can read and that you can use. And if you want someone to read that Bible with you, uh, we can make that happen too. And so we would love to, uh, we're all about the Bible here. And so we want, uh, we would love to give that to you. But if you would turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6, 
Uh, We'll be spending our time in just half a verse today, Ephesians chapter 6, verses 17a, the first half of 17. And so if you find Ephesians, it's a little letter in the New Testament, which is the second half or the second end of of your Bibles, about this far through. If you're new to the Bible, it's about there. Uh, And we're going to be in chapter 6, that's big number 6 and small number 17. And the section we're looking at is just, again, There's not a lot happening here, but there's a lot happening here. Chapter 6, verses 17a says, And take the helmet of salvation. Boom, we're stopping there. That's where we're going. And take the helmet of salvation. Uh, We normally work through books of the Bible here at Heritage Grace Church, and we're going through Ephesians, and we decided let's just pump the brakes, slow down a little bit on this armor of God section. And so if you've been with us for any amount of time, you know that that's where we're swimming in right now, considering this whole topic of spiritual warfare about this whole idea of this armor that God gives to us maybe we've heard a lot about the armor of God but we don't know what does that actually mean for my life today and so that is what we are doing and again this morning we are looking at this half a verse and take the helmet of salvation it is brief in words but not brief in substance there's a lot for us to look at this morning and so what I want to focus on as we work through this whole idea of this helmet of salvation is I want to think about the word hope. Maybe you noticed that already. Hope is a big word in the songs that we're singing and the passages that we're reading and uh, this idea of hope and assurance and confidence this morning already. But this idea of hope, I I was thinking, how do we normally use the word hope? Maybe you've already used the word hope this morning and you've said, you know, I hope someone left enough milk in the pitcher for my cereal. Or I hope, you know, the kids get dressed when I ask them. I hope we do this song when I get to church. Maybe I hope we get there on time. Maybe it's, uh, I hope I change the clock in the right direction. Or I hope they get rid of this daylight savings business. Whoever came up with that did not have kids. Uh, But anyway, I, (laughs) I digress. Hope. We hope for things, but when we talk about hope, at least the way I normally use the word hope in my everyday, day-to-day, I'm using it as like a total wish. It has, it's generally something I have no control over. And there's nothing wrong with using the word hope in this way. It's good to hope. But this is very different than how the Bible talks about hope. When we talk about hope and the examples from our lives, if anything, it shows a lack of confidence. It speaks to an absence of security. And I hope that this thing happens that I have very little control over. But hope in the Bible is more than wishful thinking. It is grounded in reality. Our hope is in Christ, in the good news of salvation, of eternal life. That is very different than the hope that we talk about in our day-to-day lives. And so as we consider this idea of this helmet of salvation, it is an active call For us as Christians to put on, to take up this helmet of salvation. But what we need to be really clear on, and this is similar to what we looked at last week with the shield of faith, is that to take up this helmet is not to save yourself, although it is a helmet of salvation. To put on this helmet is not to save yourself. It is the act of putting your hope in the object of salvation. And so this dovetails really well with this shield of faith that we looked at last week. These pieces of armor don't live in isolation. You don't just... You know, walk into the armory and pick which piece of armor you want to use that day. It all is one package deal. It's the armor that we need that God gives to us. It is the armor of God. It works together 
and it allows us to stand. And so we could fall into the trap of thinking that this helmet of salvation is redundant, especially if we look at a few of the armor pieces that we've got so far. We've looked at this breastplate of righteousness, Christ's righteousness credited to us. That is our organ-protecting armor that God gives to us. Right? That sounds a lot like salvation. Um, we talked about the shield of faith. We said it was a lesson for us in complete trust. So why do we need this helmet of salvation? Why, why do we have it? I mean, we could go as far as just saying, well, helmets matter. Your head is an important part of your body, and it needs protection. We could stop there, but there's more to it than that. Because as we think about this helmet of salvation, it's not something that we design ourselves. It's a call to put on something that's been freely given to us. And it's a call to continue in it, to actively take it up and to put it on. And so the helmet is really the perfect illustration for this. Because in and of itself, it is complete. It functions in a beautiful, perfect way. But that helmet serves no function when it's hanging on your handlebars when you're biking. My mom used to discipline me when other kids would bike by, you know, with the helmet on the handlebars. I just drove her bananas. It's like, why even have it with you? But I fear too many of us in our lives are uh, using this helmet of salvation in a similar way. We're aware of the good news of the gospel, but we don't actually put it on. We don't actually let it transform our hearts and lives. And so our big idea this morning is the helmet of salvation is the hope of salvation. The helmet of salvation is the hope of salvation. And so for us, it is a lesson in real hope. Now, how do we get here? Last week, we looked at the shield of faith, and we had some clues in the text. There were some things there about these fiery arrows and the shield that could extinguish the flaming darts. There were some things we could kind of pull out. This, again, we're just, there's not a lot we have to work with. And take the helmet of salvation. Those are the words that we have. Now, what do we do with this? Well, this is not the only place in the Bible where they talk about a helmet of salvation. And so we can use God's word, let God's word speak for itself and consider what the helmet of salvation means for us today. We get a really good clue towards what this helmet of salvation is in another one of Paul's letters. Paul wrote a letter to the Ephesians. That's why it's called Ephesians. Uh, but he wrote another one to a place called Thessalonica. And so he wrote this letter to the Thessalonians. And in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, he writes that the Christians there are to put on this metaphorical helmet as well. To put on this helmet. And there he describes it as the hope for salvation. Helmet, a hope for salvation. And so we're considering a big topic this morning. Big topic of salvation. But we're going to zoom in slightly to this idea of a, the hope. The hope for salvation. And I want to give us three stopping points along the way. Past hope, present hope, and you can guess the third one, future hope. I was going to like mix it up just to, but in case you thought it was too predictable, but that's it. Past hope, present hope, and future hope. All of which work together to give us assurance, confidence, and protection. And so let's start with past hope. Past hope, our hope of salvation. Well, the entire story of the Bible is one big story. It's a story of redemption. And I love the language of a lot of children's Bibles when they talk about uh, the whole story of the Bible being God's rescue mission for his people. I don't know why we abandon that as adults. We don't talk about that anymore. But I love that imagery, that whole idea. That's essentially the arc of the Bible. 
Things were going great in the world. God creates the world. He creates everything perfect. He saw it, and it was good. He creates a man and woman to rule, to have dominion over the earth. And pretty quickly, this high point of perfection descends into chaos, into sin. When the first man and woman decide, man, I want things my way. I want to be Lord. I want to be in control. That's what we call sin. It's rooted in selfish pride. And again, it didn't take long for things to spiral into this chaotic state. And it's the same thing we see today. All around us. You don't have to look far to see the chaos that the world is in. You don't have to look further than the mirror in the morning when you're brushing your teeth. We see the destruction that sin brings because we all sin. We all fall short of the glory of God. That's what it means to sin. We've turned away from God. We've missed the mark. So from that very first act of rebellion, humanity rebelled against God, yet right away there was a glimmer of hope. And I mean real hope. Where God made a promise that one day the seed of the woman, a descendant of the woman, would crush evil. And then for thousands of years, God continued to provide for his people. You know, and sometimes they would be obedient. They would follow him. You know, he would make himself very clear, and they'd say, right on. Right, let's keep moving in that direction. But more often than not, that same cycle would happen. They would rebel again. They would continue to wander. God would actively work to rescue his people, remind them of his faithfulness, and then, again, they would instantly forget. And again, we can look back, and we, as we read the Old Testament, we say, how did they do that? You know, he just revealed himself in this amazing way and they immediately forgot they immediately turned they immediately rebelled but again when we hold up that mirror we see the same cycle in our own lives but the story of redemption this rescue mission of god to humanity the story of the bible continues on and god continues to provide all that his people would need he continues to make promises and he continues to keep promises and he points throughout the whole Old Testament to this day when one day a Messiah would come, a chosen one to redeem humanity completely and to pay for the sins of his people ultimately. That's that story of this rescue mission. Now there was not one God of the Old Testament and another God of the New Testament or today. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so throughout history, he gives his people countless ways to hope in him, to hope in this salvation. This Messiah would eventually come. Right? Even if you don't know the details and all the inner workings, you probably know what I'm talking about. At Christmas, we celebrate when God sent his own son into the world, Jesus Christ, to come as a baby, to live a life, and not just any life as a man, to live a sinless life, to grow, never sin, yet die and pay the penalty for sin he took the weight of the world's sin on his shoulders this is ultimate salvation these are the promises that god had made for centuries about how he would redeem his people in this perfect and complete and final way and it was all fulfilled in jesus who died for sin yet rose from the dead he defeated evil he crushed evil just like god said that he would just like god had promised from the beginning 
And this is the story of redemption, God's perfect plan to rescue his people. And that really is the root of our hope. That is the root of our hope. And this is our hope because for us, we also turn away from God. We constantly need rescuing, just like God's people. And this rescue mission did culminate in Jesus. But all through the Old Testament, we can see God's justice, his mercy, his love, if we drop in at any point. Maybe you're there right now. Maybe you're slogging through your yearly Bible reading plan, and I don't know where you are right now. Maybe you're in Numbers or something, and you're like, oh, man, just get me to the New Testament. You know, get me to Christ. Well, the whole Bible is speaking of this same God who is making a way to redeem his people. The whole Bible is pointing to Christ. In the kids' uh, class that we do on Sunday evenings, we're talking about how the whole Old Testament, you can almost summarize as promises made, and then the New Testament is promises kept. That's the story of the Bible. And so we see this in a number of different places, in a number of different ways. But for example, we can look as we consider this idea of hoping in salvation, this idea of this helmet of salvation, we can drop in to the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 59. So hundreds of years before Jesus came to earth as a man, the prophet Isaiah points to God who works salvation for his people, for his people who couldn't earn salvation themselves. And so we've already looked at Isaiah chapter 59 before when we looked at uh, the breastplate of righteousness, but we're here again for this other illusion or this other note of uh, a helmet of salvation. As we see that God's people in the context here have rebelled, you know, government's corrupt, things are going squirrely, it kind of feels like 2022. But we see that God is at work. God is willing and able to rescue his people. He takes things into his own hands. And so Isaiah chapter 59, starting at verse 14, says justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away for truth has stumbled in the public squares and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. The Lord saw it and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. This is big. Then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He puts on garments of vengeance for clothing and wraps himself in zeal as a cloak. And if we skip down to verse 20, and a redeemer will come to Zion. To those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon you and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. This is the God of history. This is the God of the Bible. And these covenant promises are the ground of our hope still today that God would and God will and God does save his people. This is the message of the Bible, that God would make a way for us to be made right with him, that even in our rebellion, that while we were still sinners, Christ would die for us. When we couldn't, when we can't save ourselves, God's own arm would come to hold us up. This is our absolute hope. 
We're grounded in the promises that God has made and the promises that God has kept in redeeming us if we would just turn from our rebellion and trust in him for salvation. That is the good news of the gospel. That is what gospel means, good news. And that is good news for us today. That if we would turn from our sin and trust in Christ and his righteousness, his righteousness, his perfection would be credited to our account. It's a radical exchange, doesn't feel fair. In honesty, it isn't fair. But it is a beautiful gift to all who would turn and trust in Christ. If that is you today and you have never done that, I would love to talk to you more about that. This is our only hope. The biggest problem we face in the world is our own sin, our own rebellion against the God who created the universe, who created you. And that's a call for us to turn and trust in Christ. We are searching for hope everywhere in the world. Everybody wants hope. No one would say, I hope I don't get saved. I hope I don't whatever. We all want hope. And this is something that can actually hold it. A helmet that actually serves its purpose. This is the hope that we need. And this is why the helmet of salvation is grounded in past hope. The story of history is a story of redemption. That before the foundations of the world, God knew that we would need rescuing and that he would accomplish it perfectly for us. F.F. Bruce comments on this section this, uh, in Ephesians, this helmet of salvation, in this way. He says, the helmet of salvation is taken from Isaiah 59, verse 17, where Yahweh, God, wears it. In such a context, it might well be the helmet of victory. But the God of Israel does not receive salvation. He bestows it. Here too, the helmet of salvation recommended to the believer might be called the helmet of victory. For God's victory is his people's salvation. Salvation is already viewed as accomplished. And so the helmet of salvation is available for the protection of believers. That's critical as we think about this idea of a past hope. That past hope is all that we ground our hope in. And this is why it's far more than wishful thinking. It's the fact that we can look in the rearview mirror and see that all God has done throughout history for his people, all that God has done in our own lives, and that's where we can find real, genuine hope. And this past hope is not separate from a present hope and a future hope. We're really looking at one hope here, and that hope is Christ. But it's like we're looking at one beautiful diamond and we're turning it and seeing the light reflect in different ways. And so the past hope is one of those facets that we've looked at. But what does this mean for us today? How do we think about this hope for salvation, the hope of our salvation? Well, our past hope brings us right in to this present hope, our present hope. We see this that there is a present hope. There's an active piece to this Ephesians chapter six. It's not saying, and remember that helmet you put on at one point? It's saying, no, take the helmet of salvation. It is present. If you are in Christ, this is a call for you to take up, to put on this helmet. You might think, I'm already saved. What What does this mean? What does this mean for me? Well, again, F.F. Bruce reminded us earlier that our salvation is already accomplished. That's true. This is the reality of what it means to be in Christ. 
This is what it means to be a Christian. As we've considered multiple times already in this series, Ephesians chapter 2, Paul talks about how we are spiritually dead in our sins. That's the state of our lives before Christ. We're not doing okay. We're not, ah, he's kind of holding it together. No, we are spiritually dead apart from the work of Christ. If it isn't for that work that Christ does for us, that's the state that we find ourselves in even today. But to be a Christian, it's not something that you're born into. It's not something that you inherit, uh, you know, from where you live or what you do. To be a Christian is something that you receive. It's a free gift. And so in Ephesians chapter 2, that's the context. The scenario is bleak. We are dead in our sin. But first comes in like a thunderbolt but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. That's the message of the gospel. We cannot earn salvation, yet salvation is freely given if we would but trust in Christ. This is our present hope, that although we were dead in our sin, we are now made alive together with Christ. Because of what he has done for us, we have a very real <clears throat> and very present hope. We still sin. We still <clears throat> fail. We still fall. But it's because of Christ's righteousness for us that we have been made spiritually alive. So much so that we can read in verse 6 of chapter 2 that we are raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places. This is our present hope, that even in our sin today, our sin is covered in what Christ has accomplished for us. This is the hope of the gospel. And this is what Paul is talking about when he refers to this taking up a helmet of salvation. We don't actively take it up or put it on to save ourselves. We take it up, we put it on to acknowledge and rest in the hope that has already been accomplished for us, the salvation that has already been accomplished for us. And so another commentator comments on this salvation that we see in Ephesians chapter 6. He says it does not refer to salvation in the objective sense, but a conscious possession of it in the midst of the onslaughts of the evil one. With his head protected, the soldier feels safe in the midst of battle. Likewise, believers' possession of salvation gives them confidence of safeness during the assaults of the devil. Remember, this is the Ephes uh, context of Ephesians chapter 6. It's a very real spiritual battle against a very real opponent that we have no chance of standing up against on our own. Yet the armor of God has been given to us. And because of that, we can stand. We can have confidence. We can have assurance. We can have hope. It's a present hope. And this, just like other pieces of armor become clear of their effectiveness when the attacks come. We can stand because of what God has accomplished for us in Christ. 
This changes the way that we face trials. I love how Charles Simeon talks about, he uses this illustration of getting through a hedge, a prickly, you know, we all have that experience. You climb through a bush that you shouldn't have, you know, it's thornier than you expected. But he says this, when I am getting through a hedge, if my head and shoulders are safely through, I can bear the pricking of my legs. Let us rejoice that our holy head, who is Christ, has surmounted all his suffering and triumphed over death. Let us follow him patiently. We shall soon be partakers in his victory. It's how we can endure. It's how we can stand. It's how we can have hope. Because we know Christ has already been through it. He's already accomplished more than we ever could on our own merit. And so this passage of the armor of God doesn't say that when you become a Christian, all your problems will go away. Quite the opposite. It's very clear that trials and attacks will come, and yet there's a promise that you will be able to stand. Ian Duguid gives a helpful illustration of this confidence. Uh, he has a really great little book on the armor of God, which I would highly recommend. But he says, imagine you got two pieces of news one day. One piece of news is that you inherited uh, $10 million from your long-lost uncle. And that same day, you also get a notification that you got a parking ticket for 50 bucks. Ugh, parking tickets, right? Hate them. Once I got a parking ticket for parking in front of my own house, turns out you can only park on the road for three hours in Kitchener, I learned. But it stinks. Parking tickets stink, right? We agree. Okay, we're on the same page. But as frustrating as a $50 parking ticket is, if you received news of a $10 million inheritance and a parking ticket on the same day, which do you think would occupy more of your brain space? Which do you think would trump the other in a massive, massive way? And so I don't want to belittle trials. Trials and suffering are real. Many of you this week, I know for a fact, have faced and are facing trials far worse than an unwarranted parking ticket. But the illustration still stands because the massive gift that we have in our inheritance of salvation, our inheritance of Christ's righteousness for us, gives us confidence through the storms. The Bible talks about this hope that we have being an inheritance. If you remember one of the first sermons in this series in Ephesians, we talked about how we've been given a heritage of grace. That is our inheritance in Christ. And so, yes, the trials you are going to face are far more than a parking ticket, much more. But the inheritance that you have received in Christ absolutely obliterates the hope that even $10 million would bring. You can't buy salvation. You can't earn salvation. But it's still freely given. And so when the storms come, which they will, we can have a very real hope. We've been given a helmet grounded in the past faithfulness of God, rooted in the finished work of Christ for us today. It's our very real inheritance, our very present hope. This would be arrogant or foolish to say that we are fully confident because of our own merit. That's not what this helmet is. That's not what our confidence is. It is complete hope in the one who saves. We can presently wear salvation as a helmet, which gives us confidence so that when light and momentary afflictions come which feel neither light nor momentary, 
we can be grounded in our past and present hope. We don't need to doubt salvation because our salvation is already done. We don't need to brood over the parking ticket because it's been paid for in full. And so this hope should help us as Christians to resist sin. We'll consider future hope in a minute. But this present reality is we are not yet perfect. If you needed that reminder, or we all need that reminder at times, we think we're better than we are, but we still sin. We still fall short. Yet this call from God is to imitate him. We saw that in Ephesians chapter 5. In Ephesians chapter 4, it says, walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you have been called. Ephesians chapter 2, it says that God prepared this work for you to do. You're not saved by your good works, but you're saved for good works. So this is a call to be holy, like God is holy, but we realize pretty quickly that we are not. But that in and of itself is our present hope. This is possible because of our hope. That we need to hold to this hope. If we don't, within minutes of waking up every morning, we would know that we fall short, and we would actually fall short of the standard that we are called to. But this hope is that when we fall into sin, that sin that you promised, I'd never do it again, Lord, and you fall into it again and again, this hope that we have is that our failure is not the last word. Our hope is grounded in the salvation that has already been accomplished in Christ. It's not by grace you will be saved in Ephesians chapter 2. It's by grace you have been saved. Is this a ticket to continue in sin? No. But it's very real hope that you can hang your hat on. It's a hope that Christ bore our sin that we can be seen as righteous even though we don't deserve it. And this confidence, this present confidence, this present hope blends right into a future hope. Which again is a bit of a mystery for us. But it's a glorious mystery. We have a real hope grounded in the past work that God has done for us because of his faithfulness. We have a present hope that even now we've been seated with Christ in a spiritual sense. But we also have a future hope, a hope that one day we will be freed from sinning, where the doubts that creep in will be no longer a problem, where sin and suffering and death will be no more. There's not enough time this morning or not enough time in our lifetimes to grasp the weight of that truth, the eternal hope that we have. I can't form words. There are not words in the English language to create the size, the magnitude of that hope that we have, an eternal hope. It's not just, it's not less than past hope. That's good. It's more than that. It's not even, it's, it's more than present hope, having real confidence in the moment. It is a future eternal hope. Because of our eternal hope, we can have a present hope. And because of our past hope, we can have a present hope. All of this works together. Again, it's different pictures of light reflecting through this beautiful picture of the hope that is the gospel. And we've already sung these glorious truths this morning. Right? The first song, Christ, our hope in life and death. We said the very first words. What is our hope in life and death? It's a good question. Christ alone. And then we concluded that song by saying, Unto the grave what will we sing? Christ he lives. Christ he lives. And what reward will heaven bring? Everlasting life with him. And we will rise to meet the Lord. Then sin and death will be destroyed. And we will feast in endless joy when Christ is ours forevermore. 
do we think about the weight of those words when we sing them? Do we think about the word, every day when you wake up, do you think about this eternal hope that we can have in Christ? What about the next song we sang, Lord, from sorrows deep I call? It's a bit of a strange song. It really kind of embraces the idea of lament, which is a big part of our Bibles, but it's not a big part of our conversation every day. Lord, from sorrows deep I call. But how does it end? Be my vision in the night. Be my hope and refuge till my faith is turned to sight. Lord, my heart will praise you. It's grounded. Our current praise is grounded in our future hope. And we ended with the song Living Hope. What a line we sang. The grave has no claim on me. That's an eternal hope that Christ is our living hope. 1 Peter chapter 1 captures this past, present, and future hope in maybe one of the most beautiful and succinct ways in Scripture. 1 Peter 1, verses 3 to 9. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Christ Jesus from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested with fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him, Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Now listen to this. Obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. That is our past, present, and future hope. Our past hope that God in his mercy caused us to be born again. He adopted us as his children. That is our very present hope, our living hope, who is Christ. This is all grounded in our future hope, this future hope of a completed salvation like Peter writes about in his letter. And as the hymn writer Henry Francis Light writes, life with trials hard may press me, but heaven will bring me sweeter rest. And he concludes that song, Jesus, I my cross have taken with this future hope. It says, soul, then know thy full salvation. Rise o'er sin and fear and care. Joy to find in every station. Something still to do or bear. Think what spirit dwells within thee. Think what father's smiles are thine. Think that Jesus died to win me. Child of heaven, canst thou repine or worry? Haste thee on from grace to glory. Armed by faith and winged by prayer. Heaven's eternal days before me, God's own hand shall guide me there. Soon shall close my earthly mission. Soon shall pass my pilgrim days. Hope shall change to glad fruition, faith to sight and prayer to praise. That is past, present, and future hope that is grounded in the gospel. That is the helmet that we need today in the battle that is life. So salvation in a biblical sense is an ongoing thing. Now don't hear me wrong. We don't repeatedly need saving. We don't need to be baptized again. We don't need to uh, ask Jesus into our heart a hundred times. But what I mean by salvation being an ongoing thing is that we continually need to remember our hope in salvation. 
We have a distorted view if we think of the gospel as this one-time set-and-forget thing, that once we're saved, all right, we're, that's it, we're good to go. We need the gospel for salvation, and that is an ongoing thing. It's for us, we can get this wrong if we're like the soldier in Saving Private Ryan. There's a few different helmet scenes in Saving Private Ryan. This is a dated movie reference, but you know, you know the one I'm talking about where tink, the bullet hits the, the guy's helmet and he takes it off and looks at his helmet. And if you haven't seen the movie, you can guess what happens next. He should have kept his helmet on. But I fear that that's too many of us this morning when we think about this helmet of salvation. Maybe you've heard, maybe you are literally hearing right now, maybe you've spent your whole life hearing the good news of the gospel, that we have hope in salvation. But that helmet of hope, that helmet of salvation has never taken permanent residence on your head. You acknowledge the hope of the gospel with your lips and you're holding the helmet in your hand and you're not putting it on your head. The helmet of salvation is the hope of salvation. It's a call for us to realize that this hope is more than ethereal. It is something that we can have real assurance, real confidence in. So Christian, this morning, how do you put this helmet on? You read the Bible. You grow in a bigger view of the past, present, and future hope that we have in the gospel. You remind yourself of how much you have been forgiven, even today. Take the helmet of salvation. Wear it with confidence. Wear it with joy. Clothed in Christ's righteousness because he who began a good work and you will bring it to, be, to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. That is our helmet. That is our confidence. That is our hope. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for the gift of your son, the gift of the gospel that is our past, present, and future hope. Father, we need your help to remind us of your faithfulness. We are so fickle. We are so prone to wander. But Lord, we know that you can take our hearts, that you can seal it. And we thank you that you have for those here that are in Christ. We thank you for the confidence that we can have in your past work. We thank you for the confidence that we can have today to go into the battle that is life, that we have a helmet to wear. And it's not our helmet that we need to create. It's not... Our wearing it in itself saves us, but by wearing it, we put our hope in the salvation that you have accomplished in Christ. And Lord, we thank you for our future hope that we can rest in confidence that, that being partway through this hedge, we can bear the suffering and the trials of this life knowing that we will feast in endless joy when Christ is ours forevermore. We thank you for Christ. We pray that this time as we share in the Lord's Supper would be glorifying to you and would be another opportunity for us to consider the hope that we have in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.